Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 123, July 24th to July 30th, 1863. Last week kept us pretty busy. Cabin Creek and then Honey Springs is going to be effectively the end of any kind of major threat the Confederacy poses in Oklahoma. There will be more raids and guerrilla tactics, but as far as a larger scale engagement, this is pretty much it. Holmes and Price will be repulsed at Helena, which will open up the way to Little Rock for the Federals. Finally, we had the attacks on Fort Wagner, yet another attempt by the Union to gain a foothold in the defenses around Charleston. While you might think things will calm down, we will actually have much to discuss today as well. We need to talk about Morgan's Ohio raid and the immediate fallout from Vicksburg. Before we do that, though, we have some action in Louisiana. And before we head to Louisiana, we need to talk a little bit about the Patreon and Patreon content. Of course, we will have the new episode dropping pretty soon. This will be a movie review, and it will pair very nicely with our last episode. It will be the movie Glory, so we will talk about that. We also had, from the beginning of the month, the movie review for Gettysburg, and that went well with our Gettysburg episodes. So we will post the Glory movie review here shortly, and then we are going to close out, actually, our trifecta of movies here in a row with Ride with the Devil as well. So those sound like something that would interest you, then please take a gander at the show description that includes a link to the Patreon. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. On July 12th, we had the battle at Cox's Plantation. Now I must confess, I came upon two accounts of the battle on a website from The Ohio State University, and I want to read them. Sometimes these give us a better insight than the source material, I think, that glosses over even some of these smaller events. I'll do my best to first describe the action before reading them, though. Now, Cox's Plantation, also known as St. Emma Plantation, was fought a little south of Baton Rouge. Godfrey Weitzel and Cuvier Grover would shift their troops into this region, free from the siege around Port Hudson. Tom Green and his troops would set up on both sides of Bayou La Fourche. They would make contact with the Union troops on the 12th. On the 13th, Green's troops would attack and drive their enemy to Donaldsville. The battle would be an actual Confederate success compared to some of the other battles in the area. There were 430 casualties reported on the Union side and 33 reported on the Confederate. We do have a report from an officer on the Federal side first to really describe the action. Previous to starting, I had an interview with Colonel and Acting Brigadier General Morgan, Commanding Brigade, Emory's Division who stated that he was ordered to follow down the opposite side of the bayou with his brigade. We arranged signal flags to be used in case of necessity before separating. The advanced skirmishers had not proceeded more than one mile before the enemy opened a brisk fire upon them, 
driving in the cavalry to the infantry support. The enemy's pickets being well supported by a dismounted force, in full view, I ordered Lieutenant Phelps to bring up one of these pieces, and after four or five shots, they fell back, keeping up a fire from both sides of the bayou as we advanced. When about one mile from Cox's plantation, I halted till Colonel Morgan came up on the opposite side. When the two columns moved forward nearly abreast up to Cox's residence, when I made the following disposition of my forces. One section of Phelps' battery I placed on the road fronting down the bayou, supported on the left by two companies of infantry. On the right by the 174th and 161st New York Volunteers, the latter under Colonel Harrower and the former in command of Major Keating. These two regiments were in line of battle, the right of the 161st extending down a broad lane with a clear fire in front about 100 yards wide. Three-fourths of a mile to the right, I posted two companies from the 161st to prevent a surprise on that flank. With strong pickets on the road running down the bayou and at right angles to it, with mounted vedettes in front, I felt certain of no surprise. The 30th Massachusetts Volunteers were posted as a reserve near Cox's house, in a line of battle, with the exception of two companies, which were stationed with pickets out on the flanks, at the junction of a plantation road and the bayou road, with the remaining section of Phelps's battery. By this disposition, I had command of both roads running to the right, protection to my front and rear, with Colonel Morgan's command to the left. This was my arrangement of the force for the night of the 12th. About 6 o'clock in the evening, the enemy opened a brisk skirmish in front and exchanged a few shots with our artillery. Here we also have a report from a battery commander. The opposite bank, some distance below batteries number one, I immediately ordered embrasures to be cut for the two rifled pieces and the heavy 12-pound bearing directly on her broadside. Before half of this work could be done, the Genesee sloop of war and ironclad Essex appeared, coming from below. The Genesee covered the new London with her larger hull, and she was soon after lashed to her for the purpose of towing away. Meanwhile, the Essex, to cover these preparations, approached my position and, when nearly opposite, opened on us with 11 and 15-inch guns, firing slowly, either to draw my fire or because it was so evident her heavy projectiles had very little effect on 12-foot Mississippi River levee, the best of earthworks. The sloop and gunboats being out of range of most of my guns, I consider it useless to waste my light projectiles on the iron sides of the Essex, which may be regarded as fortunate, as I received orders soon after she commenced firing to retire in the direction of Assumption Church on Bayou Lafourche, as speedily as possible, as our flank was now really threatened by a strong force on the river road coming from Donaldsville, where General Weitzel had arrived with one or more federal brigades from Port Hudson. Not receiving any reply to her fire, the Essex retired slowly, firing at long intervals until she rejoined the Genesee and New London below, where the three vessels were lashed together and steamed down the river. I then limbered up and retired to the cutoff road leading to Assumption Church, before referred to, and reached this place, four miles above the church, at 4 p.m. today with six pieces of my battery. Lieutenant Jones, with his 12-pounder, having rejoined Coronet's battery with General Mouton's infantry below the church, Lieutenant Engel, commanding a section of Captain Gonzalez's Texas battery, was in position at batteries number 1 on the 7th and 8th instant, above the rifle section, after the firing on the 8th of July, in which it participated was withdrawn, in order to report to Brigadier General T. Green, commanding Texas Cavalry Brigade, on the left or west bank of Bayou Lafourche. I received no report of the shots fired by the section. I have no casualties to report.
So we have two reports that give us probably a better idea of what is included in a Civil War report than the actual action at Cox's plantation. But there's a couple of takeaways that I really want to roll out here. Um, obviously, in the first account, we have sort of the first day's action, and then the, obviously Tom Green is going to counterattack on the second day. He's going to catch the Union troops by surprise and rout them. So we have that description of the action. We also, in the second report, and this is obviously from a Confederate perspective, of course, but there is mention of the U.S. Navy being involved, and that's something that we need to keep in mind with a lot of these actions, especially here in Mississippi, is that the U.S. Navy will be involved and play an active part. So keep that in mind. But I also do want to mention that you have these reports from different officers, and when you combine all these reports together, that's how we're piecing together exactly what happens in these actions. Now, not every action is going to have a lot said about it. Not every action is going to have quite so detailed a report. So that's why it's sometimes hard to come up with exactly the right picture. You have to go beyond these reports, go into diaries. So that's why it can sometimes be complicated. Let's shift our attention back up to Mississippi and the fallout from Vicksburg, especially action around Jackson. Now, if you recall, we already had an engagement at Jackson in May, but this was really the Confederate Army fighting at rearguard action while supplies filtered out of the Magnolia capital. Joseph E. Johnson had arrived and, telling to his attitude in the campaign, would wire Richmond, I am too late. Sherman's men were then given the task of destroying some of the property of the enemy and some, unfortunately, civilian property as well. Jackson neutralized for the time being, Grant would fight Champion Hill on the 16th and then go on to put Vicksburg under siege. I've already been critical of the actions that Johnson takes, as well as the other departments. But to just put everything in perspective, Johnson will receive a large amount of reinforcements from across the South. Besides Gregg's men, he will get Loring's division escaping after Champion Hill. Shanks Evans would arrive with a brigade, as well as McNair and Ector's brigades from the Army of Tennessee. Breckenridge would add to this count, as would cavalry from Red Jackson. All in all, he will get up to 30,000 men. Combine that with Pemberton, then you would have a ball game. There were some quality troops amongst his divisions as well. Loring commanded one division with William Walker another, which included Gregg's brigade, having made stands against the foe already. Additionally, Walker would have Ector in a brigade under states' rights Gis, as well as Georgians under Claudius Wilson. Samuel French would take over a division, which included amongst other brigades, Shanks Evans and his South Carolina contingent. Breckenridge would of course have his orphan brigade, as well as an additional help from a mostly Louisiana brigade under Daniel Adams and a mixed brigade under Marcellus Stovall, which included a Florida contingent. Stovall was a Georgia native who served in the state militia after briefly attending West Point. He was attached to Kirby Smith and his invasion of Kentucky, and will be attached with Breckenridge and Johnson for the rest of the war. Grant and the Union Army were not oblivious to the potential relief effort. In fact, Johnson called his army the Army of Relief. He had made some fortifications, especially beyond the Black River, making it difficult for the Confederates. Reinforcements would arrive, giving the Federals the numerical advantage, even if the armies were to somehow unite. 
Johnson would call off his troop movements when receiving that piece of intelligence. His army would be looking for a way to get across the Big Black River when Vicksburg surrenders on the 4th. Now he would stand alone. When the white flags popped up on the Vicksburg defenses, Grant would wish for Sherman to be in a sprinter starting position going the other way. Dealing with Johnson's army would be the next priority. We've mentioned before in these narrative episodes that for some reason Grant is really wary of Johnston. It's probably more his reputation with the old army than anything else, but he's going to consider him a higher quality general, so he's going to want to deal with Johnson in his rear. That's always been a little bit of a worry for Grant as he besieges Vicksburg that there could be some kind of relief attempt, and now that the siege is over, he wants to neutralize the threat. Sherman would have the 15th Corps under Steele with divisions under Tuttle, Blair, and Thayer, as well as Ord's 18th Corps. Jacob Lauman commanded a division under Ord and had been his subordinate during the Corinth campaign. It was his men who had attacked in the disaster at Hatchie Bridge. Lauman had also grown up in the vicinity of Gettysburg, oddly enough, before relocating to Iowa. He was not a professional military man, which is going to be potentially detrimental to his military career. His subordinate, Isaac Pugh, was an Illinois native and had served in the Black Hawk War, also being at Hatchie Bridge as a regimental commander. The recently arrived 9th Corps would add strength under John Park. He would have divisions under Thomas Welsh and Robert Potter. Sui Smith and his division would be attached to Park, as well as an additional division under John MacArthur, in the mix elsewhere. There would be accounts, actually, of both sides being a little wary of each other. The 9th Corps troops were a little bit more polished than their Western counterparts, having come from the East, so there's kind of a weird mix of these armies and their styles. Essentially, this was going to be a significant part of the army moving now against Johnson. They wasted no time in crossing the Big Black River, Sherman having selected three different crossing places. Park would be delayed at Birdsong's Ferry by John Whitfield and his brigade of Texas Cavalry. They would sufficiently hold off a crossing by the Federals, and a bridge malfunction would put them behind schedule. This gave Johnson enough time to man and strengthen his defenses around Jackson. Several forts were constructed, including Fort Johnson, which contained some 32-pounders. The Cotton Bale Battery on the north approach around the Old Asylum was also a strong position. Sherman would actually spend much of July 8th waiting to hear from Park, getting all his ducks in a row. Whitfield and the Confederate Cavalry would meanwhile also skirmish with the advancing Union troops, buying more time for Johnson to get his defenses in place. The march was hard, as the heat and dry conditions were ridden about by the soldiers. Confederates had spoiled several of the water sources on the march, making it that much more difficult for the Union troops. Sherman would divide up his forces to approach the city from several directions. He surmised that contact would most likely be made at the old battlefield from May. Ord and Steele would fan out, coming from the relative east-west direction along the Clinton, Robinson, Lynch, and Terry roads, all of which in order running from north to south coming in from the west. 
Parker would come down the Canton Road relatively north. Lauman and Hovey would be in reserve to the south. Artillery would be exchanged between the two sides as the Union troops ran into the enemy. The Federals would pause in order to collect their strength and protect flanks against the Confederates. Parker would probe the lines, the 2nd Michigan sustaining casualties while skirmishing. In a comical scene from the war, rebel troops removed furniture from an elderly Colonel Withers' house, then had to move it back inside when it threatened rain. Withers would take up arms, a la John Burns from Gettysburg, the 70-year-old being killed during the siege. Sherman would begin to bombard the city while also attempting to move up his lines. The problem with trying to bombard the city into submission, though, is that Sherman's assembled forces had already gone through the Vicksburg siege and had expended ammunition going through that lengthy ordeal. While there was limited shelling, the Union troops decided to move closer. On the southern approach, Sherman would wish to envelop the city, at least on his side of the Pearl River. In Ord's Corps, Jacob Lauman was sent to link up with Hobie's division as it moved forward. Pugh's brigade would be the connecting unit. Pausing at a cornfield, Pugh would see clarifying orders, as his supporting units had stopped and started to dig in. Whether Lauman had been ordered to by Ord or not, he would confirm that Pugh was to move his Illinois regiments forward. They would run directly into Dan Adams and his men as well as artillery. There are accounts of great slaughter as the artillery switched to canister, combined with the small arms from the Louisiana regiments, supported by Stovall's men. Pew's brigade would walk into the fight with some 800 men, but they would sustain 456 casualties in their brief assault on the rebel works. Supports were called in, but it was too late. Lauman would actually be relieved from command as a result. Johnson would call for a truce with Sherman to remove the dead. Unfortunately, this was some time later and in the hot sun. It was impossible to move the bodies in their state of decomposition, so they were buried where they were. Eventually, their remains would be moved into the Vicksburg National Cemetery. Sherman would understand that heavier artillery would be needed when compared to the strong earthworks around Jackson. Also necessary was additional ammunition for the siege. Johnson would order Red Jackson to disrupt this supply train, but his efforts would be hampered by a potential Confederate deserter or a Union prisoner forced to serve in a support role for the rebel horsemen. Either way, this individual will confirm that the enemy cavalry was trying to raid the supply convoy. While Jackson was able to capture some minor stores, the main train was protected by a brigade of infantry, which discouraged any kind of attack. In the meantime, Sherman would dispatch contingents north and south of the city to tear up track and destroy any Confederate stores. While there would be some minor skirmishing with Jackson, these ventures would accomplish their objective. Johnson would realize that with the Union Army's raids and the arrival of the ammunition train, he would not be able to sustain a siege. On July 16th, he would start to withdraw his army across the Pearl River. The following day, Sherman's troops would enter the city. Actually, Farrar's 9th Corps Brigade was the first to enter the city and capture the state capitol building. If you remember these troops from the defense of Henry House Hill and the assaults on Burnside's Bridge and Marie's Heights. Also added to the 
regional rivalry. The Western Army was a little bit ticked that the Ninth Corps, these Eastern troops were able to come in and effectively capture the state capital before any of them could. So adds to that kind of tribalism, that rivalry between the armies. Sherman would pause in Jackson, his troops doing a little bit of looting and destruction of anything they had not hit back in May. The Federal Cavalry was dispersed on their missions of destruction, so they were unable to be there to pursue. Steele's men would mount a small foray across the river, but after a little skirmishing, they would return to Jackson. July 20th would see Sherman begin to move his men back to Vicksburg. The campaign was officially over. It is a bit of a stretch, but I think it is interesting. This is Sherman's second time in this theater of the war with an independent command. He is not overly thrilled with the task, so he's a little lackadaisical, much like Longstreet is during the battles at Gettysburg, if not as extreme. This is definitely an interesting thought, because Sherman has just gone through a huge siege with the rest of the army, and Grant is wanting to push his troops to their limit in trying to get them to fight another action, and really what you need to do as an army commander is collect the army, you've won a great victory, consolidate that, then we can fight another battle in the future. There's also many sources that point out that Sherman might have been able to catch up with Johnson, might have been able to eliminate his army, and this would have been pretty hampering to the Confederate cause because there had been all these brigades, these troops that had been shuffled in from different areas, so they're not able to go back to those different areas then that could be pretty negative toward the Confederate war effort. But effectively, he does accomplish his task. He recaptures Jackson, he pushes Johnson away, and then he's able to destroy any kind of rebel stores that he finds. So he does accomplish at least his immediate objectives. If you recall, we talked a little about John Hunt Morgan and his designs for raiding into Union territory. This would relieve the pressure on Bragg and also tie down Burnside's newly formed corps. In order to accomplish this, Morgan was going to have to supersede his orders. If you recall, Bragg could have used his cavalry protecting his wing, or at very least had him for intelligence gathering when faced with the Federal Army of the Cumberland. A raid into Union territory was always at the forefront of his mind, though. In 1863, he would have two full brigades and a battery to make some noise. His brigades were under the previously mentioned Basil Duke and Adam Stovepipe Johnson. Stovepipe had made a day-long raid at Newburgh, Indiana, giving him his nickname. Duke, it is possible, was the brains behind the northern thrust. Bragg had given Morgan a full complement of troops for a raid into Kentucky, but he was still concerned about his flank. In June of 1863, Morgan would make his way north, leaving only a few hundred to accomplish this task. Getting into Kentucky was going to be an issue, as there were several units of the new 23rd Corps in position to stop them. These would include cavalry under Frank Wolford, also known as Old Meadaxe pretty cool nickname as far as Civil War nicknames go, Old Meadaxe. Wolford was a Kentucky native who had served in the war with Mexico. 
an outspoken Democrat. He will be removed for his criticism of the government and be part of the reconciliation movement in Kentucky after the war. Shiloh veteran and Kentucky native Edward Hobson commanded a brigade in Henry Moses Judah's division of the Corps and had infantry in the area as well. Morgan would then divide his forces. At Norris Branch, part of these forces would ambush the 9th Kentucky U.S. Cavalry and chase them back to their infantry support. Having crossed the Cumberland River, Morgan would move further north to Columbia, Kentucky, his men engaging the 1st Kentucky and 45th Ohio Mounted Infantry, pushing them out of the town. Both sides would sustain around 12 casualties. Morgan's forces would then move on to cross the Green River, if you recall that being a dividing line for the two armies earlier in the war. Defending a narrow spot on the river called Tebbs's Bend was Colonel Orlando Hurley Moore. Moore had only some 266 men, so he dug in, using earthworks, abatis, and a stockade. Morgan arrived on the 4th of July, and despite possibly being able to bypass the Union outpost, would be concerned with such a contingent hanging out in his rear. Johnson's brigade would be selected for an attack, lobbing a few shells first. A demand for surrender was refused by Moore, who recognized it being the 4th of July that he would not surrender. Morgan would use artillery to renew the assault, but the guns would be plagued by accurate sniper fire. Johnson's troopers would be able to carry the first line of defense, but would be stymied by the abatis and stockade. Colonel David Chenault of the 11th Kentucky Cavalry would be killed, leading his men on the position. A cavalry charge toward the Green River Bridge would likewise come to nothing. Moore's defense resulted in 6 killed, 24 wounded for his command, while inflicting 36 killed, 45 wounded, and an additional 32 captured. These were heavy losses, especially considering that they were unnecessary. Morgan's men could not have known, but the 4th would be a terrible day for the Confederacy, and the defeat at Tebbs's Bend only added to their misery. Strategically, Tebbs's Bend would also be significant in that it delays Morgan for time, and when you read about the raid, time is always of the essence. There's always a day behind or a day ahead of pursuers, potential traps, so there's always this focus on time and being able to outrun the enemy or get out of the way of troops that are coming, converging on your position. So the fact that there's a delay at Tebbs' Bend is very important as well. Morgan would cross the Green River, bypassing Moore. From there, he would move on to Lebanon, Kentucky. Commanding the Union troops at Lebanon was Charles Hansen, the brother of Roger Hansen, who, if you remember, was killed at Stones' River, except he was on the Confederate side. He, too, would refuse an initial demand for surrender. Morgan's numerical superior force would easily flank their mostly Kentucky counterparts, driving them through the town. The battle at Lebanon would devolve into house-to-house fighting, with Hansen falling back on a commissary building and some surrounding structures. Rebel artillery would put several holes in the defensive depot, but mostly would do little damage in terms of inflicting casualties. The 2nd Kentucky would be called upon to assault the Union defense, being the best in terms of house-to-house fighting that Morgan possessed. John's brother, Tom Morgan, would be killed in the attack, enraging the rebels. 
They would threaten to burn out the enemy and in the process burn the town. Hansen would surrender at this threat, with some of the Confederate troopers voicing their opinion that they should execute their captives. Morgan would deny this, although he would tell Hansen that when he returned home to tell Mother that he had killed Brother Tom. This definitely shows the personal nature of the war in Kentucky. Lebanon had resulted in yet another delay in the proposed raid. Morgan, despite inflicting 19 casualties and capturing 360, would record 39 killed or wounded, with an additional 17 captured. Burnside would initially blame Hansen for the surrender, but he had held up Morgan, as mentioned, and did not receive any help from supporting units, so he would rescind his removal. Remember, too, that on the raid, any kind of delay is going to be a problem. Morgan would send Captain Ralph Sheldon on a scout toward Louisville, wishing to learn of the troop movements and dispositions. Sheldon would run into Union troopers at Bardstown, which hopefully you may remember as being a key location during the Heartland Campaign of 1862, which resulted in the Battle of Perryville. Lieutenant Thomas Sullivan and 25 men of the 4th U.S. Cavalry would hold up in the town at a livery, twice declining demands of surrender, only doing so when reforces arrived to support Sheldon, which included artillery. Originally, the rebels wished to decline the now-accepted surrender and destroy the Yankees, but again the raid had been delayed, and time was valuable. Morgan would faint toward Louisville, and in the meantime use a man named George Ellsworth to tap into telegraph lines so as to access the federal response. As he suspected, Burnside was concerned at an attempt on Louisville itself. In the meantime, Edward Hobson was mounting a pursuit. With him would be General James Shackelford and August Coutts. Shackelford was a Kentucky native who had already seen action going back to Fort Donelson. He will resign before the end of the war, but he appointed as a federal judge in Indian Territory. Coutts was born in Germany but emigrated to Ohio. He served in the war with Mexico and attended the military academy. He would write several manuals during his time. Before the war, he would spend some time in the Pacific Northwest, which included an incomplete climb of Mount Rainier. He's going to command troops until the end of the conflict. Now Morgan decided to make his crossing of the Ohio at Brandenburg, Kentucky on July 8th. His advance scouts would pirate two vessels to take the brigades across. While they were making their way across, Civilians from the Indiana shore had alerted the militia, who arrived with an artillery piece. Despite initially inflicting some casualties on the Kentucky side, the superior Parrot guns the rebels possessed would drive them off. Once there was a good foothold on the other side, the cavalry was able to drive off the militia, but they were threatened by the USS Springfield, a tin-clad armed with howitzers. The Parrot guns would drive away the vessel before it could do any damage. It would return with troop transports from Louisville, but likewise be dissuaded from engaging or otherwise landing the infantry. Once across, Morgan would burn one vessel before moving on. Hobson had decided to stop on the 8th and then resume his tracking of the rebels on the morning of the 9th. With the pause, and again, remember time is always critical, he would miss a chance to stop the rebels before they got into northern soil. As we are going to see here in a minute, it might have been better for Morgan had Hobson actually caught up to him and prevented him from going into northern soil, but we're going to see that here shortly. 
Morgan would decide in Indiana not to divide his forces, which we could say to be a wise decision. His brigade would encounter a defensive line of militia at Corydon, Indiana, some of these militiamen armed with Henry repeating rifles. Because of this firepower, a frontal assault by the dismounted Confederates, as well as flanking attempts, were originally held off. The artillery being brought up would scatter the militia, most of whom surrendering to the Confederates, who would then capture and loot the town. Several towns were likewise looted, and railroad bridges destroyed. Morgan would be held up at DuPont, Indiana, the garrison there refusing to surrender. Orlando Wilcox, former division commander in the 9th Corps and Burnside's subordinate, was commanding the Department of Indiana, and would start to gather militia units. Meanwhile, Hobson was still on Morgan's tail, getting to within a day of their prey on the 11th. Morgan would seek to turn into Ohio, traveling northeast toward Versailles, and then Sunham. This was putting him very close to Cincinnati. Burnside, of course, was headquartered here and wanted to do everything in his power to defend the key industrial center. With the Yankees converging, Morgan divided up his force and combined faint efforts with his continual false telegraph operations. Because of this, he was able to slip by the Federals, giving the Confederates a little breathing room. Morgan would run into a stout defense near Camp Denison and the Little Miami River. Lieutenant Colonel George Neff commanded Denison and would do a good job setting up defensive positions with a limited amount of men. Morgan was thus unable to burn the Little Miami Railroad Bridge due to a timely counterattack from some militia units. Despite this failure, Morgan was able to get across the river, moving around Camp Denison. At this point, the raid was attempting to move back into friendly soil, but it would be difficult. Jacob Cox commanded the Department of Ohio and was mobilizing militia units, and Leroy Fitch was commanding river gunboats patrolling the Ohio for raiders. Hobson was joined by additional Michigan Cavalry regiments under veteran officer William Price Sanders. Morgan would skirmish on the 17th Wheel Militia at Berlin Crossroads, and then again at Pomeroy, closer to the Ohio River. With their original escape route closed, the Confederates would have to move roughly parallel to the Ohio River or along the Stagecoach Road. It would be here where the militia would pick up the Rebel Column. A contingent of the 23rd Ohio under Rutherford Hayes would also engage the Raiders, Hayes actually allowing for Morgan to slip away. A hard ride would see the Southern Column at Buffington Island and also back to the safety of West Virginia. Crucially, though, Morgan would delay, allowing time for Hobson to catch up. Not only was Hobson on his way, but Henry Judah's division, which included cavalry of the 14th Illinois and 5th Indiana. On July 19th, with heavy fog, the raiders would look to cross the Ohio. They had been stopped by some 200 militia, who had made themselves seem more numerous. Kentucky cavalry would run into Judah, exchanging fire. These first shots would actually kill Robert McCook, serving as an aide to Judah, the patriarch of the fighting McCooks. Fitch would actually move his gunboats closer, and pressure would be applied to the 5th and 6th Kentucky of Duke's brigade. Duke had alerted Morgan to the danger, as these regiments were forced back. A new defensive line would be established, but for the most part the regiments were unorganized. 
This would become an issue as Hobson's men arrived on the field, Couts and Saunders hitting their enemy from the west and Judah driving from the south. Fitch would move his gunboats to a position where he could fire on the rebels as well, meaning there was a wide assortment of artillery now raining down shot on the southerners. Not being organized and receiving fire from a variety of locations would not bode well for the raiders. Morgan would realize the need to escape with the majority of his command. He would do so with a little over a thousand. Johnson and Duke were left to form a rearguard action, which they did, delaying the Federals just enough before being flanked by Sanders' regiments, some of whom were armed with Spencer repeaters. Duke would be captured in the process, but Johnson would be able to rejoin the rest of the column. For the cost of only 26 casualties, the Union forces had inflicted 57 killed, 63 wounded, and 71 captured. Many of the stores and fruits of the raid were abandoned or wrecked in the process. Shackelford's brigade would engage John's brother Richard Morgan later that morning. With Union troopers moving around him, Morgan and around 180 more men would be forced to surrender following pressure by a northern saber charge. Hobson had special orders from Burnside to continue without the supervision of Judah, who, despite the victory at Buffington Island, would essentially pout, also delaying Hobson from joining in the pursuit. Further along the river, Morgan would attempt the crossing. Stovepipe Johnson and a couple hundred men would move across to safety before Fitch and his gunboats arrived. Morgan had been in the Ohio, but he could not leave the portion of his command trapped in the actual state, turning back to join them. Shackleford would continue in the pursuit, commanding his own brigade and that of Wolford. They would encircle Morgan and his survivors, but while wounded men stayed to stoke fires, the Kentucky commander silently led his men past the enemy on an unguarded road. Lieutenant Colonel Cicero Coleman of the 8th Kentucky Confederate would have a successful rearguard action at Cheshire, Ohio, on the 20th, using high ground known as Cole Hill and 80 troopers. They would be forced to surrender as the Federals surrounded their position. Morgan had essentially moved back in a southwestern direction, trying to cross the Ohio, but was dissuaded by a Union transport vessel, which he believed to be a gunboat. Moving back northeast, he would essentially decide to move away from the river in order to find an easier route. Shackelford was still giving chase, as was the 86th Ohio, a newly formed regiment. Morgan and his men were fearful of Hobson's command as a whole, because they were used to fighting them and their guerrilla hit-and-run tactics. At Eaglesport, Ohio, on the 23rd, Morgan would cross the Muskingum River and engage elements of the 86th. The Southerners would evade the infantry, attempting to block their way, making it to Campbell Station, which was a stop on the rail line between Wheeling and Columbus. After tearing up some track, they would make it to Washington, Ohio on the 24th. Shackelford's command would catch them at Washington, skirmishing several times with the Confederate rearguard. There was at least a little breathing space created in these skirmishes. Morgan would continue north, moving through New Athens and coming very close to Steubenville, Ohio. Every town he passed would be combed over by his troopers for supplies and especially horses. You remember we talked about in Straits Raid through Alabama and then trying to get into Georgia. That was also very much on the mind of that commander. He needed replacement mounts, 
So he was trying to strip the countryside of them. Shackelford's command would have to slow their pursuit due to the fatigue and worn-out mounts. Burnside, though, had sent additional troops under the overall command of Major George Rue by rail to chase Morgan, saving their horses. Billy Brooks would arrive from Pennsylvania with additional militia support to combat the raiders. The 9th Michigan under William Blay, but with the direction from Brooks, would clash with Morgan at Wintersville, Ohio on July 25th. On the 26th, Way would again continue to skirmish with Morgan. The rebels did a good job of misdirecting the Union troops. Colonel Roy Kluke would form some rearguard actions, including a charge that drove away the Wolverines. Morgan would then turn his attention to crossing the Ohio and seek a local guide for that effort. On the way, he encountered a force of militia who would surrender to the rebel chieftain without a fight. Commanding these troops was one Captain James Burbick. Burbick would be riding with Morgan when the Kentucky general realized Rue had effectively cut him off. Yankees were all around him, and his tired troopers were thoroughly exhausted. Trying to be smart, Morgan would ask Burbick if he would accept his surrender, paroling his men and allowing them to keep their sidearms. Burbick would accept, but Rue and Shackelford would not honor these terms. Morgan and 346 of his men would go into federal custody on the 26th, officially ending the raid. Their fate was to see the inside of Union prisoner of war camps. Morgan himself would be incarcerated in the Ohio State Penitentiary. But the raid did accomplish several things. It delayed Burnside from invading eastern Tennessee, and it was also a morale boost to the Confederacy, especially when Morgan escaped from prison and made it back to Union lines in November. Did it take away a large amount of cavalry when Bragg really needed them? Yes, it did. Did it capture or destroy anything of real strategic value? No, it did not. You can weigh these pros and cons and then hopefully come to a conclusion yourself. But I will say that Morgan's raid is very similar to some of these raids that we've seen from, say, Jeb Stewart, that maybe they don't accomplish too awfully much, but at least there is that morale factor that seems to outweigh, in certain cases, the material gain. Let's finally come to a close there. We had a busy episode with action in Louisiana at Cox's Plantation. We were really put an end to the Vicksburg campaign with a brief siege of Jackson as well. Finally, we had Morgan's raid into Indiana and Ohio. Next week, we will head back into Virginia and see what's going on after Lee has crossed the Potomac. Additionally, we will head out west and check in on some further campaigning against the Sioux. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for your general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>